Welcome to Discern This. I'm your host, Lonzo Cook. Our guest today is the activist and author Phyllis Bennis. She's the director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute of Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. Phyllis Bennis, welcome to Discern This. Great to be with you. I'd like to center our discussion around your work with Reverend William Barber and the Poor People's Campaign. What is the Poor People's Campaign? Sure, the Poor People's Campaign is quite an extraordinary social movement that has been rising across the United States for about the last, oh, I guess about the last six, seven years, uh, led by two extraordinary faith-based activists, the Reverend William Barber, as you mentioned, along with Reverend Liz Theo Harris, both of whom have built together a movement that's grounded in the lessons learned from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who taught us all about the evil triplets of poverty, racism, and militarism, and how they are connected. And of course, if Dr. King were alive today, he would have added climate to that. So it's taking those four evils, if you will, those four injustices, uh, and recognizing that all of them must be challenged, all of them must be changed, if there's any hope of ending poverty in this country. You can't end poverty without ending racism and militarism and taking care of the climate. You can't deal with the climate without dealing with the issues of poverty and racism and militarism. You can't deal with militarism without dealing with poverty. All of these things are connected. And so the idea of building an interconnected movement, what, what Reverend Liz and Reverend Barber call a fusion movement, uh, is very much at the, at the core of what this, of what this represents. How did you come to collaborate with Reverend Barber? It's really one of those extraordinary moments that if, if this hadn't happened, would it have come out this way? And I don't know the answer to that. But Reverend Barber and I met back in 2015. We were both guest speakers on the nation's annual cruise. The Nation magazine does a cruise, Caribbean cruise, uh, with four or 500 of their readers. Uh, to give people a week of discussions and interesting speakers and all those things. And Reverend Barber and I sort of bonded uh, during the days when we were done giving lectures. I was lecturing about, at that time, the, the Syrian war, the global war on terror, Palestinian rights. Reverend Barber was talking about how poverty needs to be approached in an intersectional way. This was sort of a new, a new thing uh, after 50 years had gone by since the first Poor People's Campaign, which was, of course, led by Dr. King. It was the last project he was engaged with in the last couple of years before he was assassinated. And the effort was to try to bring together people to look first at where are we? Can we do an audit of the 50 years since Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign? Can we look at what has this nation accomplished in the struggle to end poverty? in the struggle against militarism, in the struggle against racism, in the effort to defend the environment. Where have we gotten? And sometime after that, we stayed in touch. We got together to talk about Palestinian rights. We talked about poverty. We talked about all kinds of things. And it was just at the time that Reverend Barber and Reverend Liz and others that they were working with were coming together to create this thing that would be called the Poor People's Campaign. And one of the first things they wanted to do was to draft a major audit looking at this assessment of those 50 years. And they came to my institute, to the Institute for Policy Studies, and said, would you be our research partner on this? 
And we said, oh my God, this would be exactly what we are here to do. This is what we do. We work with movements to help movements craft, as we put it, ideas into action. They had the action and we had some of the ideas. And so the collaboration has gone on since that time. And it's been a, a huge privilege and a huge honor for us to work with these extraordinary people, impacted people from across the country, uh, extraordinary activists and, and faith-based leaders. It's a very much faith-based institution, although there's always a, a great deal of room made sure for, for people who don't define themselves as people of faith. Uh, and it's, it's been just an amazing opportunity in these last years to work closely with them as they've mobilized people across the country. They've managed to get not just attention, but action from members of Congress. They've demanded and gotten meetings with the president, with top congressional and Senate officials. They've brought congressional officials to their events and demanded that they sit still and listen and not tell poor people what they need, but listen to what poor people themselves are saying they need. So it's been an extraordinary, uh, it's been an extraordinary ride. And it's, for us, it's been just an amazing opportunity to work with an extraordinary set of uh, leaders and, and activists in this movement. I'd like to play an excerpt from one of Reverend Barber's speeches in which he lays out the social and economic determinants of who staffs the US Armed Forces. Let's have a look. Today, we don't have a legal draft, and we hear a lot about an all-volunteer military, except it isn't really voluntary at all. It's made up through a poverty draft. A no-other-job draft, a no-money-for-college draft, and sometimes even a no-other-way-to-get-my-family-health-care draft. So these days, the disproportionality of the military isn't by race, it's by poverty and by the rural and urban divide. The military is disproportionately made up of poor young people, men and women, disproportionately from rural areas and small towns. And one effect of that is that, that most journalists writing or broadcasting in the mainstream national press don't even know don't even know really those are in the military because they come from the places outside of normally where the media reports. So they don't know how to talk about it. And very often they just don't. All we hear is thank you for your service. Phyllis, how does the concept of the poverty draft fit within the goals of the Poor People's Campaign? You know, the concept of the poverty draft is not something that was created by the Poor People's Campaign, nor by the Institute for Policy Studies in our work with them. It's a concept that, that goes quite a ways back. I can remember in around 1980 when then President Jimmy Carter was trying to bring back the, the legal draft. And in our mobilizing against that, we realized that it wasn't enough to just talk about not going back to a legal draft that put almost every young man in the United States uh, um, in a position where they might be drafted but that we also had to look at the poverty draft that was already in effect in what was already being called the, the volunteer army, the all-volunteer army. And the idea was it's not voluntary at all. People are pushed into joining the military because of lack of opportunity, because they can't get another job, because they don't have an education, they don't have money to go to college, they grow up in poverty for a host of reasons that have nothing to do with, oh, I want to spend my life being told what to do and being 
sent around the world to meet other people and kill them. You know, that this was not volunteer in any real sense of the word. And so the concept of understanding that there is a, a draft in effect, and it's still in effect today, so that for the Poor People's Campaign, recognizing that, and in the militarism section, for instance, of the, uh, the, the audit that we worked on with the Poor People's Campaign, that's called the Souls of Poor Folk, uh, we looked at the issue of the poverty draft because it goes directly to the intersection of poverty, racism, and militarism. So the question of who's fighting these US wars, we know who the victims are. The victims are Syrians and Iraqis and Afghans and Somalis and so many others around the world. It goes to this intersection between racism and poverty and militarism. So who staffs this army, this air force, this navy, these marines, who are they that are sent abroad to do the dirty work of this country. We know who the victims are, the people who are under the bombs, who are, who are being felled by the bullets, whose houses are being broken into at night, all of these things, who are being left homeless, who are forced to become refugees. Sometimes we don't know and we don't think about who are the people carrying this out. We have this notion it's a volunteer army. One of the things that that means is that the people who go into the military are people who are drafted not by a law, that says you must go, but by economic and social and racial realities that give them no other option. I know people from my work with Veterans for Peace and uh, Iraq Veterans Against the War. I know veterans who joined the military in recent years because they could not find another way to get health care for their family. That's a shocking reality for this country to, to have to confront. We know that people are forced into the military because they grow up in a rural area or a tiny town where there's no jobs. There's no jobs available that could support a family or even support an individual. People don't have money to go to college. The expense of going to college these days puts it way out of reach of huge swaths of the population of this country. So what do people do? They go into the military, not by choice, not by volunteering because it's the patriotic thing to do. They go in because they don't have a choice. So that's a kind of draft that we have to oppose just as vociferously as we once opposed the legal draft. So there's that constant intersection of who are the most impacted. In this case, we can see that the, the representation in the military, which during Vietnam, for instance, was identifiable primarily by race. It was black and brown men, black and brown young men from the, the urban ghettos, from the barrios of, of the Southwest, who were being forced into the military even though white people were also subject to the, the legal draft, they had better options for getting out. They found psychiatrists who would say they are not really capable. They would, they would get a lot better access to draft counseling and all those things. And the result was a thoroughly disproportionate representation of people of color. These days, the representation is not so much by race, it's by class, it's by poverty, it's by rural versus urban. So the people in the military now are disproportionately from tiny towns and, and towns of less than 25,000. And that means, among other things, that the journalists who are writing about the military generally don't know anybody in the military because they don't know anybody who grew up in a tiny town of less than 25,000 people. I don't think I would know people in the military if I didn't work with 
the anti-war veterans organizations. You know, that's been an incredible opportunity for me. But I think the reality is an awful lot of people who live in big cities, particularly people who have college education, who work in a kind of privileged bubble, let's say, the chances are pretty good that you don't know anybody in the military. What would you say to people who somewhat cynically point out that in general, it's always been the people at the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder who have fought our wars? I would say it's not cynical at all. I would say it's history. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. World War I was seen deliberately and consciously and, and verbally as the war that was fought by the poor in the interests of the rich. Things like the Christmas truce of 1914 in the middle of, of World War I was a classic example of that. Reverend Barber did an extraordinary, um, uh, an extraordinary sermon on Christmas Eve of this past year, of 2022, looking at the question of the Christmas truce. When people, fighters, men, soldiers from Germany on the one hand and France and Britain on the other hand, were fighting each other in, in trenches just a few yards apart. And they had been there for months. This particular event happened in Brussels or outside of Brussels in Belgium. But it had been going on all over the, the, the parts of Europe that were engaged in this war. And on Christmas Eve, one side heard the other singing a familiar Christmas carol in a different language. And they stuck up some Christmas trees through the tank, through the trenches. And the other side saw it and they called out something and they ended up getting out of their trenches and joining each other. And they sang songs and they exchanged gifts and they played soccer. At least that's the mythology. We're not sure about the soccer game, whether that happened or not. But there's a great movie that was made about it. It was one of those amazing things. And the first instinct of the officers on both sides was to tell them, no, 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 you can't do that. Get back in your trenches. And the men refused and they stayed out. And in a few areas, it went on for several days. In most, it was, it was the one night. But it was a moment of saying, this war is not in our interests. This is not being fought for our rights. This is being fought for you rich people. And that's really the same thing that we're, we're looking at here. You know, the reality is that if you look at the U.S. military, I'm, I don't have the figures for the last two years, but as of a couple of years ago, there were 23,000 low-ranking low U.S. soldiers whose families made so little money that they qualified for food stamps. So every time you hear somebody say, well, we can't cut the military budget, you want to cut the money to the troops? It's like, well, thank you very much, but the troops aren't getting the money. The manufacturers of the F-35 failed bomber are getting the money. Their CEOs of Raytheon and McDonnell Douglas and all these other military corporations, they're the ones getting the money. And that's why when we hear, well, there's no money for healthcare, there's no money for education, there's no money for jobs, all of the issues that the Poor People's Campaign works on, and my colleagues at the Institute for Policy Studies works on, the answer is, if we were not spending 53 cents of every discretionary federal dollar on the military, which is what we're doing, we would have a lot more money for jobs and healthcare and childcare and all the things that actually keep us safe. So that's the, the kind of intersectionality that the Poor People's Campaign and the Institute for Policy Studies bring together. Building on that, what are Reverend Barber's views on US military spending? Reverend Barber has been very clear, as has been Reverend Liz and the other leaders of the Poor People's Campaign, that military spending has got to be cut. 
They are calling, as we are, for a $350 billion cut, cutting the military budget almost in half. We know we can still be safe. We know that this massive military spending does not keep us safer. 50% of the military budget, which is already, as I said, 53 cents of every discretionary federal dollar, half of that goes directly to the military corporations. That's who's making a killing in every sense of the word on these military budgets. The people that are being killed by those weapons, the people in this country that are dying because they don't have health care, they don't have a way to go to school to get a job because there's no money, because it's going to the military. All these things are bound up together. And that's been very much Reverend Barber's position. He's spoken out at, I can't tell you how many teach-ins and congressional hearings making this point that we have got to be cutting the military budget if we have any hope of making good on the promises of what this country is supposed to stand for. I'd like to get your personal stance now, Phyllis. How have your own views on U.S. military spending and U.S. foreign policy in general evolved over the years? You know, for me, I came of age, went to college at the height of the anti-war movement around Vietnam. And for somebody who had not really thought about that very much before that, I had been a good Jewish girl in California, was very supportive of Israel at the time, never questioned that. That became a question, too. The war in Vietnam transformed how I saw the world. For one thing, it meant that I saw the world. I didn't just see the small city or country that I lived in. I saw the world, and I saw what our policies were doing in the world. And it was right at that time that I started working in the anti-war movement, I, and I did that ever since. So that's been kind of the, the framework of my political work since I was a kid. And that hasn't really changed. My, my priority areas are still militarism, stopping wars, uh, building a movement for peace and justice, but also recognizing that you can't do that in the abstract. You can't have peace without justice. You can't build justice while you're at war. So you have to take up all of these things. It doesn't mean that everybody has to work on every single issue. That would be asking way too much of individuals to become experts in everything. You know, we have our areas of expertise, we have our, our issues that we're more passionate about. But within that, there's an awful lot of room to recognize and to work to implement that understanding of what a fusion movement has to look like, what intersectionality has to provide for our movements, that it's not enough to just say, I'm going to work on cutting the military budget and I don't care, for example, what happens to these hundreds of thousands of people around this country who work in the military factories that are producing the bombs and the warplanes and the submarines. We have to take that into account. We have to have a just transition for those people, as well as we do for the people in the military, even as we work to end the impact of the military on so many other people around the world who don't have an opportunity to live a normal life at all because of the effect of what our wars are doing to them. All of that has to be taken into account. I want to play another excerpt from the same speech in which Reverend Barber lays out the peaceful goals to which society should aspire. In this campaign, we demand that we have a right to protect our communities from the ravages of war and the weapons of war. We demand an end to military aggression and warmongering. We raise our moral dissent 
our moral vision and our moral resistance. We demand and called it for, to an end any surplus military equipment from being sent to our police forces in our communities. And we need, and we demand that we need to shift money from war and militarism to meeting people's needs. And we're being called to struggle and fight to take America to higher ground. I don't know about you, but I know there have always been two streams in America, one that wanted to go backwards and one that wants to go forward. Which stream are you in? Because I still believe in higher ground, higher ground above the snake line, where we build schools and not wars, higher ground where we're more concerned about bread and butter than bombs and destruction. Higher ground, where we're more concerned about a guided conscience than a guided missile. Higher ground, where we're more concerned about saving life and educating children than exploding communities. Higher ground. Phyllis, based on your experience as a political activist, how can America reach the higher ground that Reverend Barber invokes? If I had to say one word, the answer would be movements. It's social movements that change the world. You know, the great historian Howard Zinn taught us two very important concepts that sometimes seem to be in contradiction to each other, but really are both crucial. One is he taught us to recognize and call out and take responsibility for the fact that our country is grounded, the power of our country is rooted in genocide against the indigenous population of these lands, and in slavery that went after black Africans and enslaved them in this country. And that genocide and slavery are at the root of the power of the United States. But the other thing he taught us is that this country is also a country that has a long history from its very beginnings of movements against genocide and slavery and then movements against racism and for the right to vote for women and for protecting the climate and for all of these things. And we don't win all the time, the movements don't always win, but that we are a nation that has always had political movements that mobilize to say no to these evils that have been at the root of our country from its origins. And we have to take very seriously, I think, both of those lessons that, that Howard taught us, because without that, we're either left with absolute despair of what this nation has always, what this nation has always been, or we're, we're left sort of chasing butterflies without any sense of responsibility for what led to what exists today. So we have to do both. And again, it's that question of the intersection in this case of the evils that pursue us and the mobilization that makes it possible to challenge those evils. Reverend Barber has long been a forceful advocate for intersectionality, calling for progressive groups to combine their forces and pool their efforts. Here he is in another speech, appealing for people to leave their silos. Let's have a listen. Indeed, this is what we're seeing as people who've been fighting in our silos. People are starting to link up across issues. 
and recognize that you cannot address inter interlocking injustices without an intersectional fusion movement. We are starting to recognize how we are all connected, that the same corporate interests that use white nationalism to put Trump in the White House and lean to into Zion extremism, they're the same ones that also want to cut taxes for corporations and deregulate corporations and ignore climate science and take away health care and deny living wages and put up voter suppression and take away social safety nets and and put, give more and more money to the U.S. military. If they are cynical enough to be together, we ought to be smart enough to come together and no longer fight in our silos. How do you see the importance of intersectionality? And what are the practical benefits it can bring to progressive causes? You know, the origins of the term that Kim Crenshaw created some years back goes to the question of various oppressions, that all people in this country have multiple identities. And many of those identities result in various kinds of oppressions, whether it's over race, over gender, over gender, gender identity, over sexual orientation, over national origin, over language, over religion, all of those things. So somebody who is a, uh, a trans Muslim woman is going to face all kinds of intersecting oppressions and that need to be recognized and, and she needs to be supported in that way. It's also true that we need intersectionality for our movements, that it's not enough to just talk about Palestinian rights. You have to talk about human rights on a global scale. You know, and that means both not only the civil and, and, and political rights, but it also means economic and social rights. You can't ask people to choose which rights that they want. And I think that one of the lessons of the Poor People's Campaign, one of the lessons from Reverend Barber, is this question of the need for movements to work together. I don't think that means calling for an artificial coalition of coalitions that each, each issue is its own little committee in a big coalition. It's not very practical. We have to be practical too. But it does mean that people who are working on climate need to take into account how environmental racism impacts everything they do in this country and how war impacts everything they do around the world. People working on immigrant rights can't afford to simply look at what happens when people get to our borders. And they know this better than most. They know that they have to include the conditions that lead to people becoming refugees, which means they have to work to stop wars that create massive numbers of refugees. They have to stop the climate catastrophes that create these enormous refugee flows that you can't do one without the other. So a big part of my work, for instance, at the Institute for Policy Studies is not only with the peace and justice movements that I work with directly, the work, work groups, the groups that are working on Palestinian rights or on stopping US wars, but also bringing to the environmental justice movement, bringing to the immigrant rights movements, bringing to the, uh, the racial justice movements, the women's movements, all of these other movements making sure that they have access to all the information we can get to them that's directly relevant to their work, but goes directly to the question of war. So we're, we work closely, for example, with the uh, National Domestic Workers Alliance. One of the issues for them is who are the women who are the domestic workers in the United States who generally do not have access to most of the labor rights laws that protect other workers, not sufficiently, but somewhat, Domestic workers were always excluded. Why? 
Number one, because they're mainly women of color. Number two, they're mainly immigrants. Number three, many of them don't speak English. So you have a series of ways in which they are denied the rights of other workers. And getting to them the information about the immigrant rights movement, which they're of course connected to, the question of the wars that drive people to this country, that leads to these large immigrant communities, where many of the women in those communities take up this very badly paid area of work, which now there has been a, a some somewhat of a move in the in the White House in the last few days to change that, but it's still an underpaid, undervalued area of work that has to be fought for its value. How does it how does that happen? It's because of wars, it's because of climate crisis in many other countries, it's because of militarism, it's because of racism, all of those things. So what can we do to help that movement? get access to all of this information. One of our projects, for instance, is called the National Priorities Project. And its job is to analyze the US budget every year, focusing on the military budget. And they can tell you for every city, every state, every congressional district, how much you are paying of your tax money that's going directly to fund the war in Afghanistan. And, and how much that money could go to how many houses could be built? How many kids could get into Head Start? How many children could get health care? How many veterans could get scholarships? All those options that make us safer instead of spending the money on war. So this kind of information, getting it out to the Poor People's Campaign has been a huge opportunity of, of mobilizations around the country that are desperate for this info and are eager to use it. And for us, getting we have the information, but we don't have a mass organization. So here's a great organization that we work with that are our partners that are looking for this information. So it's a great partnership. It's, it's a great connection. Phyllis, some observers say that progressives undermine themselves by their tendency to split into too many disparate competing interest groups. What do you say to those observers? You know, I think there's lots of critiques that are needed within our movement. Um, but I think what's more important is looking at what our movements are doing right and how can we support that. One of the things that a lot of the movements are doing right these days is exactly what we've been talking about, making links. The Poor People's Campaign is sometimes pointed to by other parts of our movement as an example of how to do that. It's not an easy organizational fix that you can just say, oh, okay, let's just all join together into one big organization. It, probably not going to happen. But I think that increasingly, people are recognizing these links. And I think it's younger people that are driving that. Uh, I think people of my generation are still a little bit stubborn sometimes in thinking that we can have movements that are very, very narrow. And I think we're also learning that that doesn't work so well. You know, sometimes you need for a specific campaign, it can be very focused. Uh, you have a single demand and you can pull in people from a very wide range of politics, even without uh, um, worrying too much about where they stand on some other issues. But when you're building the core of a movement, that's when you need to work with people to understand the whole range of, whether it's the, the, the different kinds of oppressions that, that people take up. I can remember back in the period when we were trying to mobilize to prevent the, re the recurrence of the, of the draft in the United States. That was at the beginning of the public part. It wasn't the first part of the movement, but it was the beginning of the public part 
of the gay rights movement. And there were some struggles within that movement over whether explicitly uh, gay rights supporting organizations should be in that in that coalition. Would they would they weaken it or would would there be pushback? Would it be a distraction? And it was a there was a long series of discussions, and by the end of it, everybody agreed. Of course, they have to be there. Of course, they have. To be there. You know, part of it was gay people were excluded from uh, from the draft even when there was a legal draft. And some of the gay rights organizations were fighting to be included. And others said, well, that's kind of crazy. Anybody who's not affected by the draft shouldn't be affected by the draft. Nobody should be. So what are you guys doing trying to get in there? It was something we had to come to understand was an issue of equity, an issue of equality. That if you're going to be discriminated against in that way, it legitimizes the notion of discrimination. And that's unacceptable. So those kinds of discussions continue and need to continue. And as I say, I think it's, I think my generation had a harder time with it and we had to learn those lessons. And we've learned some of them. We probably haven't learned enough of them, but I think younger people uh, are the ones who are bringing these connections. Um, I see it in the anti-war movement. I see the younger organizations made up of younger people. They tend to be made up more of people of color, many of whom come from the countries who have been victimized most by US wars. And it's these children and second and third generation of those communities now living in the United States that are organizing these, these great new uh, anti-war movements and organizations that are from their origins, building their, their work and rooting their work in the struggle against racism and the struggle for the environment all at the same time that they take up the struggle against militarism. So I think that is going on, and I think it's a very important component of, of how our movements move forward. Are there areas where we're not doing well enough? Sure. Are there areas where we're also doing, well, where I won't, I won't characterize, but where I think we're, we're getting off base and demanding that anyone who is participating in any part of any movement must also check a bunch of boxes to say where they stand on. No, that's also not the way to go. We need to move people with us, not demand that people check, you know, have a checklist of where they stand on five things before they're allowed to uh, participate in a, a, a congressional hearing or something. But it does mean that our movements need to understand those ties and, and fight for them and fight for everybody's interests. So it's not about, if I'm looking at the anti-war movement saying, why can't we get everybody else to come to our protest? First question is, why aren't we going to their protest? If we do, that's a good opportunity to talk to them about the protest we're doing next week. If we stand back and say, well, where are you? Where are you people? Why would we expect anybody to do that? So it's about being human. It's about being willing to share things. That's really what it's about. Building out from that, how would you respond to those who say that the political effectiveness of the left has been compromised by their lack of practical solidarity? that there's been a failure to agree on a hierarchy of achievable priorities. You know, I'm not sure that a hierarchy of priorities is exactly the way I would think about it. I think that people in this country face incredible levels of oppression that are invisible to many people in this country, and unfortunately invisible particularly to people in power, people in the mainstream media, who could make enormous differences on a whole different scale. And that is, the, the challenges that are created by racism, by poverty, 
One of the things that Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign talk about all the time is the 140 million poor and low wealth people in this country. That's a staggering number. It's almost half the population of this country. There are tens of millions of children in this country, the wealthiest country in the history of the world, who go to sleep hungry every night. And that's a crime. That's not just shocking. It's a crime. And it's a crime for which no one is taking responsibility. So I think that we have to keep in mind the, the range of challenges of what people face, people with disabilities that can't get healthcare. And if they get some modicum of healthcare for a period, then they get cut off, their insurance gets cut off. And then they find out that they can't even contact the insurance company because they can't use a telephone or they may be blind and can't use a computer. None of that is taken into account all the time. And I think that recognizing all of these things has to be in the backs of our minds all the time. It doesn't mean that everything we do has to work on everything because that's not how the world works. But it does mean that we have to fight equally for all of these, all of the people who are facing all of these oppressions. We talk about 140 million poor and low wealth. Of that, if I remember the numbers right, it's about 40 billion, sorry, if I remember the numbers right, it's about 40 million, a little over 42, 43 maybe million, uh, who are below the official poverty level, which is very, very low. The others are not below the poverty line, but they are one bad accident, one $400 accident. $400 isn't that much money to you or me. But this is for an enormous group of people, around 100 million people in this country, about a third of the people in this country who, if their kid falls out of a tree and breaks their arm, and they have to go to the emergency room and they don't have insurance that covers it, and it costs them $1,000, they don't have it. And they face the possibility of losing their job if they have to stay home with their kid who's been hurt. They get their car repossessed because they can't make the car payments, then they can't get to work and they lose their job, and then they're suddenly in major poverty. That's what we're dealing with. It's people that are on the brink of poverty all the time. And they're living with the crisis of racism all the time. And those are the things that we need to keep central. I don't think we can talk about a hierarchy. Most of the people in that situation are people with not just one or two, but many reasons why they are in that position. They may be people of color, they may be indigenous, they may be from a fourth generation poor family who never had the chance to go to college. They don't speak English at home, so they don't have access to local information that they need. All of these things are in constant flux. And then we're looking at what is the US doing around the world, where the, the poorest people in this country are still in many ways better off than the poor people in so many of the countries where we are at war. So we have to take all of that into account. We need movements that reflect all of that, but we also can't stand back and say, our movement is inevitably going to fail unless the entire movement takes up the entire range of every problem facing every person in this country, because that isn't gonna get us very far. So we need strategy. We need strategy. Strategy doesn't mean we rank the hierarchies of oppression. 
is poverty worse than racism? Well, the problem is when poverty and racism come together, which is the most important challenge for many, many people, that's what we have to look at. It's not about choosing whether sexism is more important than racism. It's what happens to black women that face both of those things. You know, this is the, I think the, the, the question of how the intersectionality of movements needs to come together. Across your career as an activist, what have been the greatest misapprehensions that you've encountered among supporters of progressive causes? Oh, that's an interesting question. The, the misapprehensions in the sense of... Well, I mean, what have some of your fellow activists not understood? I think one of the, the lessons that I've learned, I think late in life, much later than I would have liked to think, is the degree to which we have to recognize that our actions, our protests, our campaigns, our mobilizations have impact that goes far beyond whatever was the specific goal of that particular day. One of the classic examples for me that I've been thinking about a lot because we just had the 20th anniversary was the enormous global mobilization to prevent the war in Iraq that happened on February 15th of 2003. It was just a few weeks before the U.S. and the Brits went to war without authorization from the United Nations, without any level of legitimacy or legality, illegally invaded and attacked and occupied Iraq. And that protest was an enormous accomplishment in many ways. There were somewhere between 14 and 18 million people in the streets on that one singular day. 800 cities around the world, 70 countries. And it started in the South Pacific and then moved with the sun across Russia and across northern, uh, northern Asia and then down into South Asia and across into Europe and then down across Africa and then jumped the pond over to Latin America and finally, finally came to the United States. And looking out, I was at the protest in New York at the foot of the United Nations and realizing that all of these people all over the world saying the same thing, the world says no to war. And there was a moment that many of us thought, maybe this is really gonna work. And then we thought, no, it's really not. They're gonna do this anyway. But what we didn't take seriously enough at the time and couldn't, I think, given how long it took to know it, what else happened from that protest? We didn't manage to stop that war, that's true. But we did a number of other things. We proved what an internet era global mobilization could look like, that you could do that in six weeks in a way that you never could before, when we never had email and websites and all of that. It was just starting in 2003, but we used it all. We used it all. And then we saw the impact of that protest several years later in 2007, when George Bush was threatening to go to war against Iran. We know that one of the reasons he didn't was because he didn't want to face another level of mobilization like that. And in 2011, when you had the Occupy movement that looked at February 15th and said, this was, our, this was our vision of what this could look like internationally. And you had the, the indignados in, in Spain that this is what it would look like to turn a regional demand into a global demand. And crucially, you had the Arab Spring in Cairo where a number of the same organizers who had organized on February 15th and were kind of embarrassed that they had only managed to pull together a very small protest that was quickly broken up by the police. And they were looking on television and seeing these millions of people in, in the 
in the in the Western world, in the U.S. and in in Europe, one of them, uh, an, an Egyptian activist, later said, "We were seeing with our own eyes these white whiskey swilling infidels organizing against war in our region, and we couldn't do it." But then, several years later, they managed to overthrow a dictator using some of the same people to lead that protest. So we accomplished a great deal with that protest, and we have to understand it that way that. All of our protests build for something. They don't always win the exact demands, but they lay the groundwork for something bigger and for something more powerful for the future and for a new generation. We brought up a generation of activists in that, in that protest. When we were writing in, at IPS, we were writing a number of pieces around the 20th anniversary of that protest because we were very involved in the planning of it. Many of our young staff were children at the time a couple of them had been pushed in their strollers. Their parents brought them to that protest in some city or other because there were 275 cities around the United States alone where there were protests on that day. So they began their political career that way. So it's, it's an incredible moment to recognize that and realize you can't judge success or failure solely on the basis of the one demand. You have to wait for history to tell you what else you were able to achieve. The long arc, so to speak. The long arc of history. Phyllis, what do you think your fellow activists need to understand about how to achieve meaningful and enduring social progress? I think most people understand that we need many different kinds of strategies and many tactics. I think we need to all remember what I was just talking about, about how each mobilization, each protest, each petition, each sit-in, each civil disobedience action doesn't only achieve or not achieve its one explicit goal, but it sets the stage for more. It sets the stage for more. And I think understanding those things, among other things, gives people a sense of possibility and of a future. And it makes it less likely that people are going to look at one big demonstration that didn't achieve what it was supposed to do and say, well, if we couldn't pull it off with after we mobilized, you know, 15 million people in the streets all around the world, what good is it, you know? I think we'll stop saying that. We'll say, let's wait 10 years and see what else comes from this. I think it's that long vision, the, the long arc of history. It's one of the things we learned from the Poor People's Campaign. These are people who have been fighting for justice for a very, very long time. They're not about to give up. They're not about to make a judgment that at this moment, if we didn't win this fight, we give up and go home because we can't win. They know that's not an option. Giving up and going home is just not an option. I'd like to bring our discussion up to the present. You've long been a champion of practical political engagement to achieve results. Could you tell us about your work with local media outlets across the country and how that meshes with your work on affecting change in local politics? Yeah, you know, that's, it's a hugely important question, particularly these days when we see so much local media, local television in particular, but also local radio stations and local newspapers are being bought up and dissolved. They're being bought out. They're being destroyed. We're losing. We're losing that. We're, and people are saying, well, there's lots of things online. And that ignores a whole host of things. It ignores the fact that not everybody is online, not everybody has a computer, not everybody has broadband and access 24-7, that that's a privilege and not a right in this country, unfortunately. It should be a right, but it's not. 
And the reality is that it's not always easy, as we know, to filter what's true and what's not. It doesn't mean that everything written in local press or local newspapers or local uh, other kinds of local journalism, television, radio, it's not all true either. There's plenty of fake news out there in all kinds of ways. But having a local newspaper, even if it only comes out once a week and it's only a couple of pages, is a huge way of communities staying together. And one of the things that we've found, we have a project at IPS called Other Words, which is basically an op-ed project. Uh, every week we send five op-eds and a cartoon to about, I don't know, it's, I think it's about 12 or 1300 small and medium-sized newspapers around the country. Most of them are free papers. A lot of them are weeklies. Some are dailies. Most of them are very small. A lot of them are in Trump country. A lot are in rural areas where people don't have another newspaper. And mostly what they're getting are, you know, local prices of things. They're getting ads. They're getting the local football team. And then they're getting a couple of wire stories. And that's about it. Mostly because it's being put out by one person, right? So we provide them with five good op-eds aimed at people who are not necessarily familiar with leftist jargon, hopefully, and are not necessarily people who are familiar with all the international workings of, of U.S. government or national things for that matter. So it's written very consciously to take into account that people have different levels of access to these kinds of articles. And it makes it easy. They don't have to pay for them. Almost every day they send out messages to local radio stations all around the country saying, here's the issue of the day and here's three people commenting on it with a two-line quote. And the news people there can either call those people to do an interview or they can use that existing interview claim that it was their interview. We don't care because the point is to get the information out, not to have who's getting credit for it. And it's a great way. It makes it easier for them. You have one person who's carrying 15 beats. You know, they, don't, they can't be an expert in everything, but they're expected to. So it's all of those things. I think we have to be both supporting our, our progressive and alternative media and being creative about how we deal with the mainstream media, the big and the small, the national and the local. All of them are important. Phyllis Bennis, thank you very much for talking with us on Discern This. It's been a pleasure and a fascinating discussion. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.